Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the double pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gil Ben-Harut um, at the, from the University of South Florida, and also Dr. John Coiney um, from uh, Michigan State University. They are both co-editors of a fascinating uh, um, um, volume that's part of the Rutledge South Asian Religion Series. It's called Regional Communities of Devotion in South Asia, Insiders, Outsiders, and Interlopers. Um, The volume was edited by both Gil and John, and also uh, Anne Monius, who we will mention shortly. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's a pleasure. So, um, you know, uh, I study Purana, there's a backstory to everything. So what is the, what is the, the backstory of how, how did this volume come into being? Well, a little bit of extra backstory is that this volume comes out of a collaboration, out of an academic group that Gil and I co-founded back in 2013 called the Regional Bhakti Scholars Network. And uh, we did this because we were introduced by Jack Hawley actually at a conference and realized that we shared some interests in bhakti in common. And in the course of talking about things, we discovered that we both had information about our respective traditions in Maharashtra and Karnataka that we were interested in, but we couldn't have otherwise known if we hadn't have accidentally fallen into that conversation. And so we thought, well, why don't we try to make this a little more programmatic, bring people together systematically and encourage these conversations. And thus the RBSN, the Regional Bhakti Scholars Network was born. So the group tries to encourage people to have conversations across their specializations of region and language to explore connections that bhakti traditions have, to look at bhakti from a lot of different angles. We intentionally did not try to define bhakti from the outset. Uh, We're basically just getting people together to try to explore and collaborate on research on bhakti. So that's where the RBSN came from. If we're in this Puranic narration mode, we're moving into an inner frame of the story where Love we, um, John and I started to organize these uh, annual, well, it was, it was necessary to, to find some kind of a site for getting scholars together for a conversation. And that happened in, uh, the, uh, in different places, but annually in the uh, Madison conference, the annual conference on South Asia. And the first symposium we had there was dedicated to John or Jack Hawley's uh, book uh, about the Bhakti movement, A Storm of Songs, where we we were very excited to think together with different scholars of Bhakti in the room about uh, moving beyond this notion of of Bhakti as one thing and, and trying to explore Bhakti from region to region. From that, Symposium in 2014 came out uh, a dedicated volume in the Journal of Hindu Studies with contributions by John Coiney, Anmonius, myself, and Jack as a respondent. And we, when we saw that, we, we kind of took that to the next level in the following year in 2015 with a symposium that was titled Who's In, Who's Out? Right? When basically we got more scholars actually than what ended up in the book to discuss. Uh, these kind of different configurations of bhakti against others. And when we finished that symposium, the uh, Rutledge editor contacted us and asked us, you know, if we would consider kind of publishing proceedings from that symposium. So that was our cue to consider this. And when they did that, we had a few reservations actually at first, because both of us were assistant professors at the time. Um, and we're not sure about taking on a co-edited volume. And that where, that's where especially Anne Monius's leadership uh, kicked in. She's been integral to the RBSN from the beginning, but she um, 
basically said that she would take on the leadership of marshalling a co-edited volume through a publication process and um, said that she would shoulder most of the burden with, with uh, some of that heavier lifting so that you know, we could both pursue our respective tenure cases. So um, Anne was an uh, integral into uh, having this volume come out at all. And uh, not only the, the volume, but she was there from the very first meeting in 2013 uh, as we established the RBSN, she helped guide us uh, with ideas. Um, and very crucially, when we were thinking about how to start out some initial programming, she, out of the blue, offered to host a two-day workshop at Harvard with some of the ideas that we were talking about. And this was absolutely crucial for starting the entire RBSN. Yeah. So for, you know, for us, kind of, two young scholars with some ideas about getting people together to meet and establish Professor Ezenmonius and having her um, auspices of, of the first physical event was, was just, it had an, an amazing effect. It gives us this oomph, right? One of those words that Anne uh, used to, to say and, and, and own. But, but like John said, I think in a deeper sense, Anne served as a, as a mentor for us in the RBSN, uh, we, we got into these, uh, uh, this kind of a rhythm of meeting and regularly in conferences and bringing our ideas to her. And she would always um, pick them up and develop and, and kind of put them in the right perspective in terms of really, I mean, I think Anne has this, um, had these two elements in her on incredibly, uh, 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 smiling and, and, and accepting personality on the one hand, and this very uncompromising, critical mind. And both of these elements, I think, were, were kind of um, shaped the way RBSN moved forward. So she was an incredible, incredible help. And of course, together with Jack Hawley, whose assistance is just uh, too valuable even to start kind of unpacking, but it was huge. Um, so with just, but to go back to this tribute that we're making for Anne now is that just to kind of acknowledge the, the importance of her intellectual leadership, you know, and whenever we had an idea, it, it was through her prisms of what do you want to get out of this and how are you going to approach the community of scholars with these ideas. Um, beyond that, and had an incredible scholarly influence on our writings. And I think it's, it's a tragedy that she passed away prematurely before more of her work got published because her critical lenses and voice were both um, essential and I think very, very unique. Um, and, and, and that's it. That's what we have today of her. Yeah, the, the RBSN wouldn't be what it became without uh, Anne's help and encouragement. Uh, she's been absolutely vital, not only to the volume, but in, to the um, entire academic community that we're in. Well, it bespeaks the, the, the real, uh, the force uh, as a scholar and also clearly as an administrator and as a guy that she was. And also the, the, the yeah, uh, yeah. Even in the academic secular context, you know the power of parampara, the, the primacy of the guru, the, the 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 need to have that guidance and to have that clout and to have, um, uh, on some level, the validation and, and the vetting of ideas, and uh, as it appears, stories within stories is the theme of the day, and you there will be no complaint from this incarnate bard, but nevertheless, Anmonius was the advisor of my own doctoral advisor. Um, um, uh, Beth Rollman. She's not Calgary. She uh, started off with Anne when Anne was at UVA before she got the Harvard job, and she continued to support uh, Beth to completion of her degree. And so, interestingly enough, this this uh, force uh, at the academy has touched many lives directly and indirectly, indeed. Um, and another thing that comes to mind um, is that currently at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. I have been entrusted with the task of convening these events called online weekend schools. They're sort of the love child of a symposium and 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 and, and, a, and a class, a learning environment where 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 continuing studies people can come and learn. And we had a very rich uh, group of scholars speak on the last one on Hindu goddess 
one before on yoga studies. The next one will be on the Mahabharata, but I was actually thinking just yesterday that bhakti would be a great topic for one of these events. So we'll follow up and see if we can, can't round up some of your colleagues to, to present at the OCHS on bhakti. But enough subtitles for one day. Let's get back to the main story. <laughs> um, tell us what's in this book. Like what's, what's, what, what, what papers comprise this, this regional communities of devotion in South Asia? Right. So, um, yeah, we have to be careful of this uh, Puranic digression, right? Uh, this uh, digression. Um, the edited volume, as it came out, contains nine essays. It has an introduction, which, um, again, with, with, with the leadership of Anne, I think lays out very effectively what we set out to explore uh, in this book by bringing together all these scholars. Um, we, uh, we can briefly mention, you know, chapter by chapter, the contributors, and just one or two sentences about um, the, what, what's inside the chapter. The, 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 the first four chapters are uh, involved the Southern devotional traditions of Tamil, Kannada, and Malayalam. And the next five kind of move up north. There is there is a there is a reflection here about the the the, the famous and infamous bhakti movement from south to north. Uh, uh, but but I think we address that issue of making it explicit. In other words, the order of the chapters already conveys with it some kind of uh, inherited practices of the tradition that we also want to question. I'm just putting it out there. Uh, but let me begin. So the first chapter by Anmonius is titled From Foolish Ascetics to Enemies of Shiva, The Fate of Jains as Religious Others in Tamil Shaiva Literature. In this chapter, she reads the corpus of the seventh century Tamil Shaiva poet Appar against the grain of contemporary scholarship. She shows how Tamil Shaiva uses of Jain imagery change quite dramatically over time, even in the reception history of a single Tamil Shaiva poet. She also argues that a flat documentary reading of the poet's eye in the poems as a former Jane masks the complexity of the role that Jains actually play in early Shaiva literature. The second chapter by Elaine Credock is titled Kali Dances into the Cremation Grounds of the Tamil Land. And it posits local goddesses as the primary others of early Tamil Shaivism. There she examines the gradual displacement and appropriation of local goddess traditions as Shiva comes to dominate the religious landscape. And this process intensifies as the myth iconography and temple worship practices of the god Shiva become the uniting force of a newly defined community in a competitive religious milieu. Uh, the third chapter is my own and it's titled arguing with Vaishnavas, annihilating Jains, two religious others in early Kannada Shiva Bhakti hagiographies. In this chapter, I consider distinct typologies of alterity in early Kannada language Shaiva narrative. So I employ the categories of opponent other and holy other to distinguish between Brahmins and Jains in the Shaiva's rhetoric of alienation. And I also show how the proclaimed differences between the self and the other are in fact suggestive of particularly vulnerable areas in the identity of the collective communal self. The uh, fourth chapter by Rich Freeman is titled Bhakti Inc. Kerala, Alienated Selves and Assimilated Others. And this chapter focuses on the assimilative qualities of Kerala's bhakti traditions. And it argues that bhakti enables social assimilation through its rhetoric and its system of rituals in varied relations, ranging from, ranging from adulation to alliance to servitude. The last five chapters are all about Western and Northern India. And as Gil said, we had actually talked in, uh, when we were setting up this book about how to order the chapters. And so, uh, sort of we played with the idea of ordering them in some different ways which would have brought out maybe some other kinds of relationships that just the, the south versus the north uh, wouldn't have done but obviously you know you have to commit to one table of contents and, and move on 
So uh, the fifth chapter is my own, uh, entitled The Challenge of the Swappable Other, a Framework for Interpreting Otherness in Bhakti Texts. And I talk about three aspects of representing otherness. So that uh, when bhakti advocates are talking about others, we ought to be sensitive to three different things. One is the ontology of otherness, the specific names and concepts that people have for their others. A second thing is the grammar or a worldview of otherness in which otherness is evaluated and position is the person who's talking or the, the tradition who is representing others positions them to have certain kinds of relationships rather than others. And the third aspect is modes of representation or the goals or agendas in representing otherness, which shapes the ways that the others appear. And I offer that as three aspects for thinking about um, what we should do or what we should look for whenever we see representations of otherness, because all of this affects our understanding. The sixth chapter is by Christian Linovetsky. Uh, it's entitled The Political Field of Bhakti at the Emergence of Marathi Literature in Pre-Modern India. And he argues that bhakti is very political. And so as bhakti advocates talk about others, they're effectively including and excluding members from the communities, all while sharing in language that's explicitly um, political at the time is being used by political actors. And he shows this with two quite different examples from the 13th century at Nyandev of the Warkari tradition, who is relatively amenable to his local rulers, and Chakradar, a foundational figure for the Mahanubhav tradition, who positions himself much more strongly in opposition to the leaders. The sixth, uh, I'm sorry, the seventh chapter is uh, by Jeremy Morris. This is the Dutta Sampradaya and his others. He looks at guru bhakti, so bhakti especially towards one's guru, in a, a smaller, um, lesser known Maharashtrian group, the, the Datta Sampradaya, which, uh, and in his article, uh, his chapter, he's focusing on Muslims as others, which are very often talked about in the Datta Sampradaya, but he points out that deeper underneath, in a lot of their literature, there's clearly more anxiety, not so much about the Muslims, but about what it means to be Brahmin, especially what it means to be Brahmin at a time when so many Brahmins were working as, as administrators for the Deccan Sultanates. The eighth chapter is by Philip Lutgendorf, entitled Lost in the Lake, Tulsidas and His Others. And uh, Philip argues that uh, Tulsidas and the Ramcharit Manas uh, implicitly is, uh, implicitly but also consistently, is an otherizing saints and advocates who are very much within bhakti traditions, except with a different vision of who, uh, what God looks like, especially God without qualities. And uh, he highlights that um, although this is still bhakti uh, and very much within uh, accepted bhakti traditions, there are still internal arguments that are going on. And the final essay is by Anand Venkat Krishnan who examines how some Mimamsaka philosophers, who usually aren't known for being very amenable to bhakti or thinking directly about God very much, nonetheless adapted themselves uh, and some devotional themes to um, their own self-understanding and their own rewriting of history. And so he argues that at least for some Mimamsaka branches, the branches go out a little bit further and encompass more than is usually commonly thought. And bhakti actually plays a role in this, even implicitly. So that's the in entirety of the book. Well, there's some, oh, uh, a number of uh, fascinating, fascinating papers there. Um, let's pan out a little bit, perhaps, and talk about the, the, the volume as a whole. Um, um, what would you say, uh, does it argue something overall? Uh, is, it, or is it just a collection of fascinating arguments um, um, where does it fit in in the field you know what does it what does it contribute would you say well i think uh we, we can address this question maybe through the uh, kind of the coming of being of this book not as we described before but from an intellectual point of view what we were aiming at right what we wanted to achieve and and i think the starting point was um this this <laughs> maybe a, a sort of a naive or initial rudimentary excitement from this idea of othering in relation to bhakti, right? Because we're, we're, we're in, in, in academy today, and I think more broadly, everyone is very sensitive and, and cognizant of this issue of othering. And, 
and its kind of uh, effect or result in communalism um, and even uh, sectarianism and sectarian violence. Uh, but these are, uh, first of all, they're rarely addressed in, in the study of Bhakti. And, and so there was a kind of a, not a lacuna, but sort of a, a kind of an uncharted field. What happens when we look um, using these lenses at the kind of the familiar, more, more kind of, um, I don't know how to call this familiar field of bhakti studies, but, but to approach it in, in a fresh lens of othering. And uh, beyond that, I think, and this is a different point of view, the idea of othering, uh, is already with us when we look back at the past. And we wanted also to examine that. How do we examine um, this idea of religious difference or religious inclusiveness? How do we see that unfold when we look in, in materials that we call, or the, tradition, the traditions themselves call bhakti? So there was this kind of, you know, I, I think an initial impulse of curiosity that pushed us uh, into it. And, and, and very quickly, we noticed that, in fact, when we examine these materials that define the other or talk about the other, they are very much interested in defining themselves, right? So you're, you're immediately kind of uh, thrown into this dyad, into this binary, where there is another, but what we are, but, but we are, in other words, right? One, while we talk about the other, we are uh, defining who we are as a community, as a religion, as an idea, as a self. And we also notice that this rhetoric of othering takes very different shapes from one region to another. And it's very much contingent upon historical context. And in that sense, it served well, I think, the role of RBSN to kind of enrich and diverse and com complicate the idea of what bhakti is and, and moving into a notion of bhaktis in the plural. So the moment I think we, we understood that this can be a major um, hinge or a vector for exploring bhakti more generally, we decided to develop it, I think, further in the book. Another thing that it pointed out, uh, and I think this is one of the values of the book, is that in exploring all of the diverse renderings of others, and including a, a vast array of different kinds of others across the uh, South Asia, what I think the book also shows is that there is a certain integrity to bhakti as an organizing concept. And that, uh, for some people, there, there have been some criticisms of that, that bhakti has been overly reified, it's been invested with too much importance or too many things that Bhakti supposedly did uh, as a, a force in South Asian history. And even within the larger RBSN, these warnings were, they're very well taken. But I think uh, the volume points out that there is something of a reality to Bhakti as a discrete category, both in the traditions that are using this term explicitly and in ways of um, sort of etic usage that we've employed to group them together by common discursive tactics that they employ. And I think the essays demonstrate this very well, uh, both in, in terms of the groups that they're talking about, the traditions and individuals that uh, we're drawing on these, this discourse. So in highlighting the differences among all of the Bhakti traditions and authors, as these essays do, they not only point out traditions that we're very familiar with, such as uh, that Gil and I work on with the Varkaris and the Virashaivas, but many of the essays also help us push beyond the conventional boundaries of what a bhakti tradition, you know, can, you know what we usually think of in terms of bhakti traditions. So especially um, uh, thinking of Jeremy Morse's and, and Rich Freeman's and Anand Venkat Krishnan's essays, looking at the Mimamsakas or Bhakti in Kerala, which has a much more kind of amorphous figure, uh, amorphous kind of character and uh, Bhakti devoted to the guru. Uh, so we wanted to be inclusive in this, this volume. And in doing so, I think, although we didn't come back to the conventional view of Bhakti just as a single Bhakti tradition or the, the bhakti movement as a, a singular entity, uh, we did, I think, 
still come back to reaffirming the, the validity of, of bhakti as an analytical category. There is a, just a coincidentally, right before this, this podcast, um, so these podcasts uh, began as a favor, then became a hobby, and they're now sort of a lifestyle. Uh, you kind of put them in in between client calls and scholarship, and you know I'm sure you're all well aware of the need to juggle uh, <laughs> in these times. But uh, right before, immediately before this class, this podcast, that was a Freudian slip, I had a class, I was teaching a class um, called uh, The Textual Tapestry, Threads of Indian Tradition. So it's essentially a... Um, an introduction, it, 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 well, yeah, it's an introduction to Hinduism, essentially. And so um, we artificially look at the different strands, you know, anachronistically, but chronologically, you know, the, the, the Vedic strand, the Upanishadic strand, you know, the epics, uh, the devotion strand, the tantra strand. Those are the, the five that we focus on. And then in the last class, which happened to be today, <laughs> we, <laughs> uh, we show that in, 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 in modern Hinduism, it's a tapestry. Uh, but the face of that tapestry is the idiom of bhakti. All of the images we looked at, whether we see Vedic fire sacrifice at the at the temple, uh, um, it, regardless of a strand of, of religiosity, bhakti is the idiom. The, I call it the Hindu jungle. The, the the face of the jungle is bhakti, and and we 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 can't. Um, uh, there's no getting around that. So I'm, I, in my personal view. Um, it's not really possible to give bhakti too much press time when studying the Hindu jungle, but that's uh, my opinion. So what you're saying resonates. I, you're I, not going I, to get an argument from us against that. I, I realize. I, no, it's a, I think it's a great point to highlight on the <clears throat> difficulty of studying bhakti, right? And this highlighting of bhakti as a category exactly because it's all over and um, it, it's claimed by everyone. Uh, I mean, I mean, the, the sort of an elephant in the room is the modern, contemporary, really contemporary, uh, nationalistic use of bhakt, right? This, um, which which is very different than what we're talking about when we're talking about pre-modernity, and there are, and but this is just one example of how bhakti is uh, can mean different things for different people in different contexts, and I would, uh, I think, for me. There is something about the Anthropocene, this this kind of uh, uh, the, the 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 human at the center of of bhakti, this human sensibilities which are become so important, so highlighted in bhakti that makes it um, amenable for different uses. But 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 it's important to say we're not, and it was clear to me, to John and I from the beginning, we actually make an active effort not to define. Bhakti in any kind of conclusive way. I think there is something very practical about this active avoidance because once we'll do that, we know that we will exclude by definition other materials that might be relevant and 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 shed light. I mean, you know, the Hindu fold outside the Hindu fold, right? You mentioned just now how bhakti is kind of everywhere. So this kind of cultural hue of bhakti versus bhakti as these very well-defined closed communities. All kind of different axes that we can define where bhakti refuses to fit or behave well by uh, sticking to one of the uh, of one of the ends of these dyads. So I think for us, it was important to allow these conversations and these challenges of the idea of bhakti. Um, and, and I think secondly, we hope that by this activity, we show that it is useful, even though it's difficult to define, it is very creative and useful to work with bhakti and not to say, oh, well, you know, everything is bhakti. We shouldn't work with that as a category. On the contrary, working with this problematic category can be very creative. So do you want to, please go ahead, John. Yeah, so I'm also uh, piggybacking on that then the decision to hold the definition of bhakti open was not only an intellectual decision, so that would keep our minds open to sense out different connections that wouldn't have immediately occurred to us, but in the context of the RBSN, since we've been trying to be inclusive and expansive and encourage participation from a wide variety of people, we were 
encouraging people to be thinking creatively. And we still are encouraging that. And in our annual symposia uh, at the Madison South Asia conference, uh, we have been for some years and inviting other people to take up the reins, propose new themes, uh, invite different kinds of people. And that's been very explicit and very intentional for us that we wanted to be sort of a gathering place around the topic of Pakti. But by holding the definition open, we allowed more people to come up with their own definitions that even Gil and I wouldn't anticipate. Well, it's, it's part of why I find compelling this metaphor of the jungle in that, uh, in that anything we can call Hinduism is an ecosystem, not a not a genus, not a species, and and you know you look. One can study soil in the jungle, and it, it pervades so much of the jungle. One can study sap. One can study flight patterns, and like any category, any aperture into Indian religions, uh, it necessarily becomes you know like a, like a vine, like a creeper, so far-reaching that it interconnects in ways that we wouldn't anticipate at the outside as scholars. So it's it's fascinating. I'd love for you to maybe tell us a little bit more about. Um, about uh, the future of the network or perhaps uh, uh, further developments on this work or what you're working on now? So in the near future, uh, we have at the next, uh, the upcoming Madison South Asia conference, another symposium. Uh, this topic is uh, print and bhakti. So especially in the 19th, uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries, the impact of uh, printed works on changing the character or of making materials available, or in some cases, even somewhat creating a canon by having an actual printed work there. We're looking at the effects of that. And that's another thing that cuts across South Asia, uh, since printing presses did move across many different regions and languages. And so we thought that this would be another fruitful way to explore the possibilities of understanding bhakti, but with an, a different sort of common thread running through them. So that's coming up here in October, but this is uh, just the most recent iteration of this annual format that we have um, kind of gotten into. And every year we have a different topic. Uh, this past year at Madison, um, because of the pandemic, we held off uh, for a year uh, in, rather than try to, to meet then. But uh, we intentionally choose uh, very diverse topics and, and Gil and I introduced the first few of them, and then we explicitly made a decision. Uh, we wanted to invite other people to introduce themes um, and take up the reins. So that's going to continue on. And in the future, as we've done this, and especially as we've had more experience now online here this past year with the pandemic, uh, we are considering and exploring some other kinds of online platforms that might facilitate, like what you were saying, Raj, of uh, these uh, weekend classes. Um, facilitate something that's a little bit less um, heavy on the planning side, that maybe is more flexible and uh, could serve like the, the purposes of some smaller groups, like say just you know short workshops or something that are be uh, virtual kind of hybrid style. So we're sort of thinking about what this this might look like. We're, we haven't made decisions yet, but um, but it seems appealing. Yes, and um, I mean I, I can I can pick up this of online and maybe talk about a little bit about Bhava, uh, the current project that we are working on, which, which is, is technological in essence, right? The Bhava is the acronym for Bhakti Virtual Archive. It's a project that has been uh, in development for the last five years. We got um, the, the funding of the American Library Association and recently the very generous and important support of the American Institute of Indian Studies for this um, as a digital um, humanities scholarship. Um, the Bhakti Virtual Archive was born out of this recognition that we need, oh, it's time again to organize all the bibliographies about Bhakti, something that if you look back, happened once or twice before in recent decades. Uh, there is something um, uh, you know, that plagues the scholarship of Bhakti in relation to understanding what bhakti is, and that is that the scholarship is scattered. It appears many times in edited volumes that are hard to find, uncatalogued, um, and, and just not marked in an easy manner. So we thought, well, if it's time to create this bibliography of the field of bhakti, uh, maybe we should consider doing it in, in you know, with the digital technology rather than the traditional publication. 
And that idea started to roll and develop into this engine, search engine, where people could go into the website, which will be open to the public, and search for Bhakti scholarship, but, but through different lenses and through different categories. If you're interested in knowing about uh, you know, female Bhakti poetesses from the pre-modern, or if you want to know about commensality and food practices in Bhakti of a certain century, you could get all the scholarship about these themes across regions, across languages, in ways that are really hard to find today when people approach Bhakti, the field of Bhakti, and want to learn more about. I think this is uh, essential both for research and teaching. And, and that, so that these ideas that we started to roll out are now taking form. I want to invite everyone to uh, our website, regionalbhakti.org, where you'll find information about the RBSN activities in, in different uh, perspectives and dimensions, but also there is a section about bhava and, and its ongoing process. We are very excited right now. We're doing the curation that involves 13 different uh, uh, scholars, experts of regional bhakti traditions, and we're collating all that information into one big database of scholarship about bhakti, both primary and secondary materials. We estimate we hope to reach something of about 5,000 items in that engine with a very nice and sophisticated but easy to use uh, search engine uh, for, for uh, performing these uh, searches. Uh, I, think be, I think something to connect to that is that the Bhava will facilitate ongoing research about bhakti across regions. That its core uh, uh, goal. And, we, and John and I are thinking about the following symposium uh, to be dedicated to exactly that. How by, you know, when we get all these scholarship kind of re-examined uh, or represented through these digital technologies, when we can find different scholarships, what do we find? Can we make that into an intellectual pursuit of shared themes or differences? between different Bhakti traditions, between periods, between historical contexts. So we want our future symposium or symposia to be dedicated to that. And that is just an, one example of the sort of collaborations that I think get John and I going uh, in, in the RBSN. That is fascinating. Uh, that's, it's really rich. Uh, it's um, super important in our times to have digital tools. And it's um, it sounds like you're engaged in some really important, exciting work. We'll be sure to include the the uh, URL in the podcast notes as well of whatever you'd like folks to follow up on. John, was there something you wanted to say? Um, unless you wanted us to talk about our own individual future research, uh, we could do that. Yeah, but, sure. Uh, I often, I often. So um, I've got a book coming out later this month here. Uh, this is a Shared Devotion, Shared Food, Equality and the Bhakti Caste Question in Western India. Um, that looks at... Uh, the, the saint that I've been focusing on, uh, Eknath of Python, and uh, his uh, stories of interacting, especially with Dalits, um, and the question of equality uh, after, especially framed by Dr. Ambedkar. That's coming out. Um, I'm working on some translations of Eknath's Bharuts. Uh, these are allegorical drama poems in which Eknath takes on the persona of uh, a number of different uh, socially marginal characters. He also writes in uh, terms of Persian administrative letters, um, but the, what's most fascinating to me is he takes on the persona of Dalit characters and teaches spiritual messages through them. So I'm working on some translations of that. I've got a project uh, looking at transnational Buddhism between uh, Ambedkarite Buddhists in India with Buddhists in Taiwan and Japan, and I'm gradually making something of a turn towards transnational religion and doing some comparative uh, studies of Indian and Chinese traditions. Now, rumor has it that you'll be back on this podcast, isn't it? That's what I've heard. I've heard the same, so that's a good sign. <laughs> um, Gil, what are you working on now? Well, um, again, in connection to John, right, I'm, I'm working right now on a translation project. Actually, it's a co-translation with my Kannada teacher, Professor Arvias Sundaram, and it's conceived as a, a kind of a follow-up to my first book, my first book, Shiva's Saints. Um, discusses and and it's an argumentative monograph about this collection of stories 
from the 13th century about the Shaiva Bhakti saints. Uh, in this co-translation, we are actually translating and editing uh, those stories for a separate publication. Um, I, I have a tentative title in my head of uh, uh, Stories of Shiva's Saints, right? If the, the first book is Shiva's Saints. So this come up as a completion to really allow other people to read those fantastic stories, which I'm really excited. So I'm, I'm kind of steeped up to my ears with translation and editing and this sort of very different kind of academic faculty, you know, in our mind of that's called translation. Uh, I think that takes up a lot of my time. Uh, in addition to this, I'm also in a kind of a, a, a kind of a private right now digital humanities project of online dictionaries uh, through a, a program, a software I wrote uh, called Digital Roses. Check out digitalroses.net. And um, right now there are some Canada dictionaries there and Prakrit and Sanskrit and English. And I'm doing all kinds of stuff with, the, with this idea of uh, making more and more dictionaries, especially of less studied languages that are not available online, that are not as uh, academically rich online, to make available those good old you know, missionary dictionaries available online through scans and quick searches. So that is a digital humanities project that I kind of dabble with. In addition to this, I have a, a second book project on the Vachanas, this Bhakti poetry, which is so, you know, I, I think it has such an appeal as a universalist poetry as A.K. Ramanujan famously presented in Speaking of Shiva. And I'm, I'm interested in the history of Vachanas. It, 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 it tended to be called a history of speaking, tracing how Vachana literature was uh, related to and perceived through the centuries. So these are, you know, different kind of projects, uh, but it's all good, right? It's all generative and, and inspiring. So it's fine. So it sounds like you, you along with John, have tons of free time on your hands. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, I have a number of guests on here of, of, of various stripes, all scholars, um, uh, or at least their credentials and publications say so. Um, uh, but it seems that independent of this podcast, that all of us are at the the forefront, the cutting edge of um, digital humanities and, and creating, uh, we were ahead of the curve that's, that uh, that COVID has sent the world scrambling towards, it seems. <laughs> so um, while I have you on this, on this podcast, um, I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Let me get a bit of context. I had this sort of, I'm in this very bizarre but fulfilling space of, essentially being a self-employed academic, producing scholarship, teaching online, uh, teaching and coaching as primary means of supporting myself. And online teaching used to be a, an embarrassing side gig in 2016, 2017. And <laughs> as of 2020, uh, colleagues and friends, established profs are like, hey, Raj, that kind of side gig of yours? Um, <laughs> how the hell do you do that? <laughs> so the world's changing, obviously. And it seems from what I gather that you're also uh, ahead of that curve or, or helping to, to, to shape it uh, in no small measure in our field. And so what is your sense? I mean, uh, I have no specific agenda in asking this. What is your sense of what's happening with digital humanities, with online education, with, with the fate of the academy, with, with, with learners? Like, it, it's a rich topic. If you can share some of your thoughts, that'd be fantastic. That is a vast question. Um, I'm not sure if I'm able to, to even speculate very well on sort of where the larger field is going, but I mean, just speaking personally about something that's, that's kind of interesting to me and that's relevant to like my own teaching. Uh, so teaching at a place like Michigan State, large public university, um, students, you know, it's, a, it's pretty accessible um, financially for a large number of students. So a lot of students come into my courses, especially about Asian religions and have not traveled very widely. And it strikes me that um, digital humanities and kind of multimedia productions help to integrate something into the classroom that is otherwise, um, I, I've honestly have sometimes struggled to, to bring across. You know, being in a different place, uh, being situated in a different place, surrounded by you know, different climate, uh, different nation, national rules and whatnot, is so important, I think, for understanding culture and religion. 
it's sometimes hard to bring that across in like an American classroom. And so like one thing that I've been trying to, to think about, uh, especially with climate change, uh, with, you know, the, the ecological weight of flights to different parts of the world and things, just thinking about how technology can be used to bring more sort of international presence into the classroom without requiring students to have to go places because, you know, many students don't have the resources to do that. So you know, I've been gradually working towards what I'm calling uh, modules of international presence and you know, trying to have just say a little 15 minute, uh, I mean, you see these on like YouTube, like little 15 minute clips of uh, some sort of interesting presentation of an aspect of uh, a tradition people haven't heard of or, you know, there's like religion for breakfast is one of these YouTube channels that does this. So I've been thinking about trying to, you know, produce something fairly low key of my own with uh, some of my contacts in places like uh, India and Taiwan and Japan and try to supplement classes with that because not only, not only does it address this sort of equity issue of students not being able to travel or the ecological issue of the impact of travel, um, but um, also it's um, addressing or it's uh, speaking to students with uh, very much where they're at, you know, uh, having them read, um, you know, one or two chapters of a textbook, you know, some students will get, you know, get on board with that, but having them watch a YouTube video, you kind of can be confident everybody's going to have done that work. So I'm thinking just pedagogically, it's, it, that side of it is essential. Fantastic. Kill, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, again, the topic is vast. We can address it in different ways. Um, I think the technology is great where it brings something new to the table, right? So I think in the, in the manner that John described very much, I think in the way that Bhakti Virtual Archive, Bhava, facilitates new kind of access to bibliographies it's essential that um, the field of South Asia will catch up on, on digital literacy and digital um, accessibility of materials. And here I'm talking beyond the, the classroom, also about research, the availability of text and textual analysis uh, in the realm of, of digital humanities. I mean, South Asia is so way behind China, the, the China Sinology and, um, and of course Europe, and there is so much more work to be done there. On the on the on the flip side, you know, I I, I still enjoy the smell of books, and I still, you know, I kind of I make the argument in my classroom that uh, a printed book is the most sophisticated technology of consuming text. In other words, you can interact with it, you can scribble, you can fa find things very fast in its own way. Um, maybe in completion to read digitally. In other words, I'm trying to find some kind of a balance, right? So on the one hand, really enriching digital environments and enjoying what they offer us on so many realms, like John said, the, the, the topic of equity in its manifold ways. And on the other hand, not to let go of, um, you know, kind of um, the tangible aspects and then the value of, personal relations, I mean, personal communication in conferences that happens outside the, the lecture hall, right? Outside the Zoom meeting, right? The, those casual conferences is, is where RBSN was born. If we didn't have that, we, ha we would have no RBSN. So we have to be very kind of flexible, I think, and creative in the ways that we integrate and uh, involve both, both modes of existence, the physical and the virtual. And this technological side too, especially since we've been having conferences now here online for a year, there's lots of different ways of running a conference. So it doesn't have to be just a Zoom marathon session. Uh, there's sort of hybrid and flipped ways of, of interacting. And because now so many of us have been involved in this, especially for people who are moving across great distances and for whom like say an, an annual meeting in the US in November you know, for people to fly in from around the world to that is, it's costly, it's uh, not very practical, a lot of people don't have the means. Um, 
I mean, it, this seems to be right on the cusp of um, creating some new venues that would be online and interactive to enable the international research and collaboration and and things like conferences that don't necessarily have to take you know the just the long Zoom session format. It, the technology is all there, and it's not that it's not that hard to use. And in fact, you know, using sort of simpler technology for this, um, I think. It's already starting to facilitate uh, more international scholarship and international interaction. Fascinating. Uh, when I started podcasting on this channel in 2018, uh, part of my email, I just sent an email out to scholars who had recently published books to ask them if they wanted to appear. And one paragraph of that email was, I use this platform called Zoom. <laughs> Where you know now, there's no need to introduce Zoom. It's uh, <laughs> there's no need. Um, uh, just one thing I want to touch on before we close. We're pretty much at time for today. Is um, this the importance of, of of hybrid that both of you are echoing? Because the sweet spot to me really does seem to be the tasteful and the sensible integration of tradition and innovation. You know, to prioritize one over the other is, is perilous. And uh, there's nothing that can replace the immersive experience of flying to Dubrovnik and experiencing Dubrovnik for the, for, for the, the, the conference on the Sanskrit epics and Puranas. I haven't had that pleasure, but I've had the ability to present online last year. I think it's a triennial or biennial conference. And so there's, uh, there needs to be a way to, 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 as I say, integrate tradition and innovation. Uh, enough yammering on from me for today. Thank you both for appearing on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this work, Raj, and uh, for having us here on your podcast. You're very welcome. For those of you listening, we've been talking to Dr. Gil Ben-Harut of University of South Florida and Dr. John Coyney of uh, Michigan State University. They, along with the dearly departed uh, Dr. Uh, and Monius of Harvard University, uh, our co-editors of a brand new Rutledge South Asian religion series uh, publication called Regional Communities of Devotion in South Asia, Insiders, Outsiders, Interlopers. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating bhakti. Take care. <laughs>